like to ask those that are, are still here to please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings this morning. 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4. We're continuing just a brief two-part series on the faithfulness of God. So this morning we're looking at an Old Testament passage, 2 Kings chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7 will be our text this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are hardcover Bibles located in the back of the chairs near where you are seated. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that Bible with you as a gift from Trinity. So please just be aware of that. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? She said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. So says the word of our Lord. If there's ever a, a, a genre of music that is known for its melancholy view of life, it would have to be country music. I mean, think about the, the view of life that is reflected in just the title of, of, of a few of the songs. Think about titles such as this. How come your dog don't bite nobody but me? Or this one. You're the reason our kids are ugly. I know captures the ethos of country music in a nutshell. Of course, the chorus that captures perhaps the ethos of country music best is a, a classic chorus that goes like this. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. <laughs> on cue, on cue. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. If there is ever a person in the Scripture that could echo that song from hee-haw, it'd be this widow in 2 Kings. See, it was a very perilous time to be a follower of the Lord. Jezebel had led the nation into the worship of a false god, an idol called Baal. And she had convinced the king that the followers of Yahweh, the followers of the Lord, were dangerous and needed to be persecuted lest they corrupt and rob the nation of the blessings of Baal. Now, this woman had been married to a man who was bold in his faith. 
He never let his allegiance to the Lord fade. Now, I say that based upon verse 1. Look at how he has described the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. Now, that phrase, sons of the prophets, refers to those, kind of an underground movement, that were being trained in following Yahweh, as well as maintaining their fidelity to Yahweh in the midst of persecution. In many ways, this was an underground seminary similar to what the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer led in the early days of World War II when he started an underground seminary in Volkenwald, or Finkenwald to lead people in knowing the Lord. That's what was happening here. This man had been faithful, but notice also the description of him. You know, she says to Elisha, that your servant... Because Elisha was apparently the leader of the sons of the prophets, your servant feared the Lord. This was a man who had literally staked his life on the truth that Yahweh alone is God. He had stood firm against the worship of Baal. He had feared the Lord. And he died. You see, we need to be reminded that faithfulness does not stop crisis from knocking at your door. Following the Lord doesn't mean that our lives will be free from tribulation and trials. It doesn't mean that there will be this, this bubble around us protecting us from bad things. In fact, when crisis knocks, when it knocks at your door, it doesn't wait for an answer. It barges on in, whether you're ready or not. Death had knocked and forced its way into this family. And this man's death set, a, set a on, on course another crisis because notice the situation. Verse 1, the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. This man had died leaving a lot of debt. Now, remember that at the time the scriptures were written, this was not what you would call pleasure debt. This wasn't like he had wanted to go and get a new RV and so he'd run up the credit card. That wasn't the case. Debt in this time came out of the need for survival. Usually it occurred when there was a famine or persecution and you needed to borrow money in order to get food. In fact, it's believed by many that this unnamed servant in 2 Kings 4 was actually a man introduced in 1 Kings by the name of Obadiah. Obadiah was a servant of Yahweh. He was true to the Lord, and he had been placed strategically by God in the court of Jezebel herself. And we are told in 1 Kings that Obadiah did something very bold. When the persecution against the sons of the prophets increased, he took and he hid a hundred of them in a cave. And he provided food for them. So some scholars believe that Obadiah was this man and the only way he could provide food for these prophets that were hidden was to go into debt. And now he's died and the creditors have come knocking. It's also a difficult time in Israel because notice it's at the point where the creditor is saying, I'm sorry about your loss, but this debt is here. I've got the papers. Your two sons will need to come and work for me to pay off the debt. Understand when it says that the creditor wanted them to be his slaves, they were being sold into to chattel slavery like was so tragically found in the history of our nation. This was more like indentured servitude. They would work till the debt was paid. It was like in times past. If you had gone to a diner and didn't have enough money to pay the bill, you may wash dishes in the back till you could pay for it. Well, now the children were going to have to work to pay off dad's debt. 
And this was going to leave the woman in a worse place than before because with the children gone, she had no way, no way at all to make ends meet. Crisis was knocking, and it didn't wait for an answer. So this begs the question of us today. What will you do when crisis knocks? It surely will. In this world, we will have trials and tribulations. What will you do when crisis knocks? On May 7th of 1915, a German U-boat torpedoed the USS Lusitania. It was a, a passenger ship crossing the Atlantic. Germany had sent out warnings that any ship crossing in the shipping lanes was subject to being sunk. In fact, they claimed the Lusitania was actually smuggling arms into England. Thousands of people lost their lives because the Lusitania sank within an hour. The tragedy was compounded by the fact that even as the lifeboats were gotten into the water, they were found to be unsafe. They weren't large enough, and many of them were old and sank themselves. They had placed life preservers for everyone on the ship. However, the life preservers were not enough to save the people because they weren't equipped in how to put them on. Many died because they put the life preservers on upside down. Here's the point. Don't wait till the torpedo hits to be sure the lifeboats are okay. In other words, prepare ahead of time. Crisis is not the moment for you to decide what you believe about God. You need to settle on who God is prior to the crisis occurring. To have said in your mind, this is who God is, and no matter what winds blow, I will stand firm upon the truth of who God is. And out of this passage, I want us to see two bedrock truths about who God is, two truths that will help you to stand, to stand firm when crisis knocks your door down. The first is this, God is always faithful to provide Mark it down and remember that because as sure as I'm standing here today, Satan will tempt you to doubt God's faithfulness when you don't see how things are going to work out. Step back for a moment with me, if you will, and see the big picture. First and Second Kings are two books that really focus on one thing, and it's a question. Who is the one true God? That's the, the overarching question found in First and Second Kings. Is Baal the one true God or is it Yahweh? Now, as I said earlier, Jezebel had elevated the worship of this false god Baal to a state religion. Followers of the Lord were a persecuted minority. But not only was there political pressure to worship this false god, there was a sensual draw also. You see, Baal was the god of fertility. And often involved in the worship of this idol were sexual sins that are best left unsaid. So here is the challenge. Who is the one true God? Who is the God who could really provide what is needed? You see, Baal was a storm God who controlled the rain. He was the God who controlled lightning. He oversaw the storms that many controlled lightning. He was the God who could give a good crop. So the question is, is Baal the only one who can do these things, or is it Yahweh also? So let's take the first one. Baal was the storm God who controlled rain. The prophet of the Lord, Elijah, comes on the scene. And he boldly makes this statement. There will be no rain for three years. And guess what? 
For three years, nary a drop fell. Until one day, Elijah says, what's that I see in the distance? I see a, a dark cloud the size of a man's fist, and it's getting larger. And on Elijah's word, God sent rain. Round one, the Lord is God of the rain. But Baal was also the God who controlled lightning. So one day, Elijah challenges the followers, the followers of Baal to a contest upon Mount Carmel. Those prophets of Baal built an altar. Elijah built an altar. Over 400 of them there up on Mount Carmel. And these prophets are dancing. They're cutting themselves. And, and nothing is happening. Not even a firefly is appearing to burn up the altar. Elijah says, do me a favor. I want you to pour some buckets of water on my altar. Douse it. Get it as wet as can be. Then Elijah steps up and says, Oh Lord, my God, here is an altar to you. Send your fire upon it. And fire came from heaven and consumed it. Round two, the Lord. He is the God of the fire. But now Elijah was taken into heaven on a fiery chariot taken up into the presence of God. And Elisha picks up the mantle and now he is the man of God. So the question is, when round three begins, will God be faithful to work through Elisha also? And here we see the question of who will provide. Is it Yahweh or Baal? This financially strapped widow is the one over whom the battle is fought. She's told to go gather empty vessels from your neighbors. Go get all you can. So she goes and she gathers all that she can. And then she pours oil till she can't pour anymore. God is the one who provides. Not Baal, not false gods, but Yahweh. And I want you to notice three things about the provision of God. He provides generously. Look at verse 7. She didn't get, just get enough to pay off her debt. Notice what Elisha tells her. Go sell the oil, pay the debts, and you and your sons can live off the rest. There's enough oil there. You've got an annuity now that's going to see you through the end of your days. God did not skimp on his provision. He filled up every bit of Tupperware she had borrowed from every neighbor until there was no more to fill. God provided generously. That's what our God does. He does this time and time again, providing more than we need. Think for a moment, if you will, about the miracle of the fish and the loaves where Jesus is preaching and teaching and thousands have gathered and the disciples say, where are we going to get food for these guys? And Jesus says, go and see what you can find. They come with a boy, maybe 10, 11 years old, and he's got with him five fishes and two loaves of bread. And Jesus says, that'll do. Get them spread out. And then he multiplies the fish and the loaves. But what we often miss is this. Do you know at the end of the day, they collected 12 basketfuls of leftovers of bread? Not fish, because who wants to keep fish overnight? There's just enough fish. 12 baskets of bread. They were using aluminum foil like it was going out of style, wrapping that up. Take it home with you. Take it home with you. That's how our God provides. Remember in the book of Ephesians, Paul said these words, Our God is able to do more than we ask or think. And this provision of God is not just limited to financial needs. Now you see, understand, I'm not preaching name it, claim it. God's going to provide what we need. But often we limit God only to the financial aspect of things. Our God provides strength we need for the day. 
You feel weak? God will supply the strength you need in abundance. You feel hopeless? God will supply the hope you need in abundance. You need to be restored? God will bring about restoration in abundance. And he will do this because not only does God provide generously, he provides graciously. Understand this widow had nothing to offer Elisha or the Lord. I mean, what does she have to bargain with? She's holding on by her fingernails. And the truth is, we really don't know what led to this situation. It may have been a noble cause, like feeding those prophets that were hidden in the cave. Or it may have been mismanagement. We don't know. But the point is this. God provided graciously. Remember, our God is full of grace and mercy. He is not a, what have you done for me lately, God? You see, we fall under the burden of legalism thinking, well, I haven't done enough for God to bless me. I haven't done enough for God to be gracious. There is nothing that we could ever do to merit earning God's grace and mercy. He gives it to you freely and abundantly. Isn't it good to know that when we feel condemned, Jesus says there's no condemnation. I've thought a lot about Peter walking up on the water. Remember the story? He says, Lord, let me come to you. And, and Peter starts walking on water. His focus is upon Jesus. And he's walking step by step on the waves until the moment comes where he starts really seeing the waves. And what happens when he starts looking around the waves? He starts to sink. Now, I'm so grateful that at that moment, Jesus did not look at the other 11 in the boat and say, See what happens? See what happens when you take your eyes off of me. Let's just let Peter sink for a moment. I mean, after all, he's named Rock. Let's just let him sink for a little bit because that'll teach him a lesson, won't it? But our God did not do that. Instead, it says that automatically Peter was at the boat and in the boat received. Thank God that he is gracious. Thank God that when the prodigal returned home, he was met by a father with outstretched arms, not a finger pointing at him saying, how could you do that to me? But with arms that embraced him that said, let's celebrate because my son who was lost has now come home. Church, that is the God we serve who gives graciously and faithfully, not condemning, and he gives gives to us out of his mercy don't let satan tell you that that whatever hap is happening you deserve or whatever's happening god has abandoned you he has not because god will provide generously he will provide graciously and he will provide gloriously isn't it interesting that he tells the widow once you've gotten all the all the vessels from your neighbors you go in by yourself shut the door behind you this was so that it was clear there was no cheating going on here. This was an act of God. And God alone would get the glory from it. You see, that's the point of the miracles. Now, I want to go on record as saying I believe our God is a miracle-working God. I believe in healing. I believe in strengthening. But I also keep this in mind also. The point of every miracle is not the miracle itself. If we get hung up on the miracle and fail to worship the God who sent it, we've missed the point. The point of the miracle is to be like a huge billboard flashing, God is sovereign, God is great. In fact, Jesus gave a warning to those who are hungering for miracles alone. They were coming to Jesus saying, oh, if you'll just do this sign, if you'll just do this sign. This is what Jesus said, you adulterous generation. No sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. The Son of Man will be in the earth for 
three days, then he will rise again. He says the ultimate miracle, the ultimate proof, the ultimate sign will be the resurrection of Jesus from the dead after being crucified. So you see, even if God does not work in the way that I think he ought to work, God is still sovereign as evidenced by the empty grave. God is gracious, he is generous, and he brings glory to his name because ultimately it is God that we need. So God is faithful to provide. He is Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. And he is also, this is truth number two, he is faithful in his compassion. Notice there are no prominent people in this. Other than Elisha, no one's named. We don't know the name of the, the prophet who died. We don't know the name of the widow. We don't know the name of her sons. We don't know the name of the creditor. We don't know anything except Elisha. That's because these people could be anybody and everybody. And it's a reminder that even we feel overlooked by the world around us, our God never overlooks us. This widow would have been on the fringe, the fringe of society, powerless, no resources, no connections, yet God knows her. She cries out to Elisha as the representative of Yahweh, and Yahweh responds just as God responds to everyone who calls out to him. So hear me clearly today. If you feel like you don't matter, you matter to God. You feel like you're a nobody, Nobody knows who I am, and if I weren't here, nobody would miss me. That is not true. You are a somebody to God. He not only knows your name, but did you know that in the book of Isaiah, God is talking about his people, and he says, you are so close to me, this is how close you are. I have tattooed your name on my hand. You can't get much closer than that. God knows you by name. You're not forgotten. You're not forsaken. He is the strength of the weak. He is the hope to those who feel hopeless. And you may be crying out right now in your moment of crisis, and you're saying, God, if you hear me, why aren't you doing something? Lord, why aren't you doing something? I want to remind you that you are his child, believer, and he is always at work in your life. Even if you cannot see exactly what he is doing, it doesn't mean he's not doing anything. I believe God strengthens us and supplies for us in ways we're not even aware of. I really enjoy the song that's being played a lot on Christian radio by Toby Mac. Yes, the pastor listens to Toby Mac. It may be midnight or midday. He's never early, never late. He will stand by what he claimed. I've lived enough life to say help is on the way. Cling to that. That God is true. Because if we believe these truths about God, we will do one simple thing. We'll cry out. That's what this widow did. She cried out to Elisha. That word cried means to beseech for help. It's the cry of someone who has come to the end of their rope and they don't even have enough strength to make a knot. They're ready to give up. Help me. Give me aid. People often ask, what is the secret of prayer? I've been reading a little book by a Swedish theologian. His name is O. That's his first name. It's probably because I couldn't pronounce the rest of it, but O. Hallisby. He said this. 
The secret to powerful prayer is this. Helplessness. Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only those who are helpless can truly pray. I've come to believe that there are really two types of people in the world. There are those who know they are helpless and those who haven't realized it yet. That much of what happens in life is beyond our control. We can't change hearts. And often it's not even in our ability to change circumstances. And it's that very thing that pushes us to call out to God. Help me, Lord. And that's where we meet the God who is compassionate and the God who provides. So I ask you today, are you calling out to him? Your situation may not be as dire as the widow's. Doesn't matter. Crisis comes in all different shapes and forms. But the response needs to be the same. Call out to him. Would you bow with me in prayer right now? In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. And this will be an invitation to you to respond to whatever the Lord is doing in your heart. This may be a time where the Lord's just calling you to pray. And you can certainly do that where you are. But the Lord may be calling you just to take another step and to come to this altar at the kneeling bench and pray and just call out for help. You may be thinking, I don't know what to say, or the, the crisis is so deep, it's robbed you of your voice. I really believe that God hears our heart when we are broken and we are calling out, Lord, help me. So in just a moment after I pray and we stand and begin singing, if you need to come and just kneel at this altar and pray, feel free. Have the freedom to do that because our God is faithful and he is compassionate. Gracious Lord, I thank you that you are both of these things. For Lord, in this day and age where crises come and go, Lord, we need the stability of your faithfulness and your compassion. So I pray for this morning for that one who is struggling, that one who wants to give up, that one who feels that life has taken all the strength they have. I pray this morning that you would renew their strength. For the one who feels hopeless and overwhelmed by grief, I pray, Lord, that you would remind them you'll provide what they need, that you have overcome even death. Lord, to the one who feels forgotten, Remind them this morning that they are never, never forgotten by you. You know them. You know the hairs on their head. You know they're rising up and they're going out. Remind us of these truths, O oh God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.